0: Welcome to the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. The case we're going to be looking at today is a big joint appeal that for ease we're going to call the Crown on the application of Carmichael and Rourke and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. The citation for this case is 2016 UKSC 58. The focus of this case is the controversial cap on housing benefit known colloquially as the bedroom tax. For those who don't know, a claimant of housing benefit is entitled to have a certain number of bedrooms in their home, but if they have more than this number, then they are subject to the cap. An important factor in this case is that there is an exception to this rule in the case of some disabilities, and furthermore, a claimant can apply for discretionary housing payments, or DHP, where an extra room is required. All of the individuals in the present case have more bedrooms than they are entitled to under the scheme for a range of reasons that we will go into. All of them have also had their benefits capped. The actual challenge falls under two main grounds and I want to deal with one of those straight off the bat as it was almost unanimously dismissed. So under the Equality Act 2010, the Secretary of State has what is known as a public sector equality duty which means he has a statutory obligation to not only eliminate discrimination, but also to advance equality of opportunity. The legal question here though is one of due process, and it was held by the court that in establishing the cap, sufficient consideration was given to the question of discrimination. Lady Hale dissented in respect of one applicant, A, as she submitted that not enough consideration was given to victims of gender-based violence, which is a protected characteristic. However, the majority felt that the consideration given to gender discrimination in general was sufficient. Moving on, the main challenge was founded on human rights grounds. For these purposes, there was no dispute that this question fell within the scope of both Article 8, the right to a private and family life, and Article 1 of the first protocol, the right to property. But the question here is whether, in conjunction with these rights, there is a breach to the right of non-discrimination under Article 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights. In answering this, the Supreme Court began by noting that the test to be applied in such a case was whether the discrimination is, quote, manifestly without reasonable foundation, end quote. The reason that this test is used is because this is a question of economic and social policy. So now that we have the test set down in front of us, we can begin to look at the actual cases brought by individuals against the Secretary of State. The cases of Carmichael and Rutherford questioned a particular rule that entitled housing benefits claimants to an extra bedroom where children, but not adults, cannot share a bedroom because of a disability and also where adults, but not children, require an overnight carer because of a disability. The Supreme Court agreed that this arbitrary distinction between adults and children had no basis in reason and, for the purposes of the test, was manifestly without foundation. However, while Carmichael and Rutherford were successful in their case, all of the other applicants who either had a disability themselves or a family member with a disability failed because their need for an additional bedroom was not directly connected to that disability. Essentially, the court concluded that it would be perfectly reasonable for these claims to be considered on a case-by-case basis under the discretionary housing payments, DHP scheme, that was mentioned earlier. Finally, we will consider the case of A, who we also briefly mentioned earlier in relation to the public sector equality duty, Now, A currently lives in what is known as a Sanctuary Scheme House, which is special accommodation designed for women at severe risk of domestic violence. Here, there is clearly a strong argument in favour of A remaining in this house where she feels safe, but there is no direct correlation between this and A having an extra bedroom. In fact, the only reason that she does have this extra space is that no appropriately sized property was available, when she first moved. Therefore, as with the previous case, this lack of a direct link between the protected characteristic, whether that be disability or gender, and the need for an extra bedroom, means that the claimant must fail. Lord Carnworth and Lady Hale did dissent on this particular case, arguing that this was an unjustifiable discrimination. In other words, A had to be protected, and the Secretary of State could not offer up good enough reasons for not offering this protection. I think when it comes to analysing this case, we have to be careful, not least because of the sensitive nature of the subject. On top of this, it is important to distinguish between the political decision to implement the bedroom tax in the first place and the legal decision in this case. Ultimately, it is for the government to set policy and make the law and the role of the courts is to interpret this law in the light of the existing legal system. With this perspective established, it is possible to recognise the difficult position that the Supreme Court has been placed in. The government has clearly acted in such a way so as to take precisely this type of legal challenge into account, and government lawyers are clearly not amateurs when it comes to drafting this type of legislation. In particular, the establishment of the discretionary housing payment scheme has proven to be a particularly effective means of providing enough of an alternative to avoid claims of discrimination, while still allowing the government to keep a tight rein on housing benefit payments. Nevertheless, there is an argument that the courts could have done more, In their dissent as regards A's case, Lord Carnworth and Lady Hale submitted that the discretionary scheme was not sufficient to avoid discrimination because of the difficulty and uncertainty involved in obtaining it. This does make one wonder why this line of reasoning could not be applied throughout this case and to the discretionary payments generally. Is the scheme really an example of the government doing all that it can to promote equality and avoid discrimination under the public sector equality duty? The answer to this question is probably not, but at the same time we do have to remember that government schemes do have to have a degree of flexibility built into them in order to function, but for the courts to seize on this discretion in favour of the claimants could well lead to the unintended consequence of the government reacting and making the scheme more draconian than it already is. Once you have read enough of these types of cases that involve challenges to government departments, you begin to realise that in many ways the courts have to pick their battles, and ultimately this is one they probably know they're not going to win. Well, thank you very much for listening to this podcast episode. If you did enjoy it, make sure to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Apart from that, I look forward to speaking to you next week. Bye!